1: Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. I'm Sean Cooper and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Sean Galbraith. Sean is president of Galbraith and Associates, a boutique urban planning firm in Toronto specializing in small projects. Sean speaks the language of planning. Sean has over 20 years experience as an urban planner. Sean's career has primarily been focused in the private sector where he has worked on a wide variety of residential development applications. He also provides planning advice to community groups and others. In my interview with Sean, we discuss how a city's policies around urban planning influences the type of homes that are built, what could cities be doing a better job with from an urban planning standpoint to help make real estate more affordable, and what could all levels of government be doing to help put shovels in the ground faster for new homes. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sean Galbraith. Hi Sean, how are you doing today? Great, how are you? I'm good, thanks. As mentioned, Sean, you're an urban planner. Can you please describe what that involves for anyone who may not be familiar with the role?
0: So I'm a planning consultant, and I basically help people get developments approved through the city's development approval process, which can be confusing and lengthy and infuriating, and I help make it less so, at least for the The homeowners or the property owners or the developer.
1: Great. And I'm just curious, who would be your clients? Would that potentially be the developer? My clients are typically
0: small project developers. So that can be anything from a homeowner who is looking to make renovations to their house. And I work up to the scale of about a small mid-rise building, like six or seven stories. And that would be more of a, a traditional condo developer. But my, my bread and butter are small projects that require minor variances to go through the committee of adjustment. And quite frequently, we encounter neighbors that are either don't understand what the project is or are strongly opposed to what the project is. And we try and work with them and work through it. And sometimes the project has to change. And sometimes the project can't change and we just have to sort of sometimes fight it out and sometimes that gets appealed and we have to go to, through the appeal process and it becomes a whole big thing. My typical client is someone who's never done development before. And we sort of quarterback the, the application for them so that they don't have to do it themselves and it's something that they wouldn't know how to do themselves necessarily.
1: And I guess based on hearing that, I would imagine that there are certain situations where somebody tries to go in themselves and it doesn't end up going so well with their neighborhood. So perhaps they might reach out to you at that point in time when they're in a little over their head.
0: It absolutely does. The, The process is not intended that you need to have a professional helping you, but boy, does it go a lot smoother if you do most people have no exposure to the planning system until either they want to do a development. And by development, I mean anything from like adding a floor to their house or making the deck larger than you're allowed to, or adding a secondary suite in the basement or something like that. Even that small level is called is development. Um, but most people don't have any exposure to to what the process is until either they decide they want to do it themselves or, they get a letter in the mail saying your neighbor is doing something different. And that's where, you know, someone like me who specializes in this stuff can really help plan a a strategy, plan a course. I can help figure out if what you're doing has any chance of getting approved or not. I mean, some people, their, their dreams very much exceed what the policy might consider appropriate for your property, let's say. And so I, and sometimes a ruiner of dreams. I'm totally okay with that. I'll tell my clients, there's no hope in hell of getting approved what you want. A lot of times we are negotiating with neighbors and, you know, maybe there are some improvements that can be done to the plans that don't really impact the applicant very much, but can go a long way to appeasing what the neighbor uh, has an issue with.
1: I guess an analogy that comes to mind, and and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to be going to court, you could represent yourself, but it might not go so well. I mean, kind of a similar thing to working with a rip planner like yourself. I think it is a fair analogy. Like There's terminology and there's a certain
0: level of understanding that the committee wants to hear and that most people who have never been through this and don't know... What a variance really is, they just they don't know how to speak the language of the committee. Like for example, let's say you have you're, 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 you have a house and it's in an area of the city that's zoned for 0.6 times floor space index, and you're proposing 1.0 floor space index. People listening to what I just said, they may have no idea what that means. But this the committee of adjustment is going to expect you to know what that means and know. How does your project how does your 1.04 space index or fsi how does that compare to your neighbors how does that compare to variances that they've approved in the past are you setting some new high watermark in terms of density or are you sort of comfortably in the middle and these are like basic questions that anybody going to the committee of adjustment should be prepared to be asked and should be prepared to answer someone who, who has never done this before I would be surprised if they would know where to even look for it. And it's not like there's a guide out there that says, this is how you do it. There isn't that I've ever seen. And so that's why, you know, people like me offer the services that we do. Because we know how to find that information. We know how to speak the planning language to the committee of adjustment. And we know how to be prepared for the questions that we can be expected to a- be asked by either neighbors showing up in opposition or by the Committee of Adjustment. We'll have prepared for all of them ahead of, ahead of time uh, and be ready to go with answers. It just makes the process so much smoother when the committee knows that they're dealing with somebody who knows what they're talking about and they can put a degree of trust that the answer is correct.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think credibility is important there. And and just quickly want to touch on uh, what's the difference between an independent urban planner and one that works for the city? A city planner,
0: I mean, there are any number of jobs within city planning that a city planner would do. When it comes to development, it's more of a development review role. So they will get a file that comes across their desk and they have to have a look at it and decide whether or not the city will oppose or support or be neutral on that application. So let's say you are wanting to make your house a little bit bigger. You've got to ask for some minor variances and you make an application. The application will eventually get circulated to the the planner who's in charge of that area or responsible for that area for reviewing applications in it. And they will look at it and say, okay, this this density seems fine. I don't have any issue with it. And then they just, they don't express an opinion because they're fine with it. But they get one that comes across their desk and says, ooh, mm, this is, this maybe is too big, or there's creating impacts, or we just, we are concerned that if we don't impose a condition on this, that the approval could have unintended consequences or it could be used to then change the design afterwards and build something that we don't want. So in that case, the city planner would write a report to the Committee of Adjustment and say, either we recommend refusal of this application, or they would say, uh, we recommend in the event that it is approved that the following conditions be attached to it. It's not necessarily adversarial in that, you know, there's one side in, you know, giving evidence and there's the other side giving evidence. And then, you know, it's not like a court in that respect. They're providing their opinion. And even myself as a, as the planner for the applicant, I'm not there as an advocate for the, for the applicant. I'm there to help them with the process and express my opinion that this project is appropriate. There can be dueling opinions. It's it's more, you know, dueling witnesses rather than dueling counsel, like you would have in a a court.
1: Great. Thanks so much for explaining that and making it easy to understand for the listeners. So just following up on that, urban planning also involves zoning regulations and density. Can you discuss the importance of those two items and how they come into play? It's all about zoning regulations.
0: Planning policy regime is basically comprised of two major pieces of policy, two documents. There's the official plan for the city of Toronto or whatever city it is. And then there's the zoning bylaw. The official plan sets more aspirational, more broad goals and policies. So like it might say, we think that the streetscape should be harmonious and that buildings should work well with their environment. So it's a little more wordy, let's say. And then the zoning bylaw will say, you have to have a front yard setback of 1.2 meters, a maximum density of 0.6 times the area of the lot, a height of 10 meters, a building depth of 17 meters. It's, it's very prescriptive and it, it's very numerical. It is law versus policy. Anything that you want to do to your property has to comply with the zoning bylaw or else you have to get permission to go outside of the restrictions of the zoning bylaw. Uh, And so the zoning bylaw tells you exactly how much you can build on a property, tells you what uses you can have. It tells you how much landscaping you need to have. It's very prescriptive. And then Again, outside of if you want to have a little less landscaping or you want to make your side yard setbacks a little bit smaller, or maybe your house a little bit taller and your building a little bit deeper and now you want to add a secondary suite and maybe it needs a second door or you want to make the building a little denser, that is a little more floor area than you're allowed. All those regulations in the zoning by law, each one that you can't comply with, or don't want to comply with, you have to get a minor variance for. That's through the done through the committee of adjustment, and that's could be the same for you know if you want to build a small deck that's a little bit too big, or you want to build uh, a condo tower that's a little bit bigger than you're allowed.
1: Great, thanks for explaining all of that. A follow up question to that is, can you talk about how does the city's policies around urban planning influence the types of Homes that are built, as well as the price of homes.
0: The zoning bylaw is basically the recipe book for what you can build, and that includes the type of housing. For example, the zoning bylaw sets out a series of what are called zones. It's called zoning bylaw. So you've got your mixed use zones, you've got your industrial zones, you've got your parks, and you've got your residential areas. The residential areas have their own sub zone so in toronto for example you've got the r zone the residential zone and that is possibly the most flexible residential zone that i've ever heard of it allows everything from a single detached house up to a small walk-up apartment and everything in between duplexes triplexes fourplexes townhouses pretty much anything that you can think of and it's most easily visible in former city of Toronto, old Toronto, where you have annex mansions that have been split up into apartments, next to a single house, next to a you know a triplex, and then next door is in a small apartment building. That those those wonderful weird eclectic old Toronto neighborhoods. I mean, one example is you go to High Park Avenue, at, start at Dundas, and walk south and just look at the variety of housing types that you'll find on that one street alone. It's, it's wonderful. It's my favorite zone. And then you have things like semi detached zones, which allow semis or detached. And then you have townhouse zones that add townhouses and you have apartment zones and then down to the most restrictive, which is the RD zone, the residential detached only zone. And that is by far the most common zone in the city of Toronto. Uh, it is the most restrictive zone, and it's the one that I personally oppose and have some activism against. The RD zone, this residential detached zone, it comprises I think it's something like 62% of all residentially zoned lands in the city of Toronto. And the only thing that you're allowed to do on it is build a single detached house. So you see that commonly in you know North York and Scarborough and the, the inner suburban cities. Very, 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 very common in those areas. And it greatly impacts what you're allowed to build on that property. If you wanted to build a duplex, you're not allowed to do that. If you want to build a triplex, you're not allowed to do that. But you go into old Toronto and you have a single detached house and you want to turn it into a fourplex, That's no problem. You can do that. You just need some variances. And I've worked on four or five projects where we've converted a single detached house to a triplex or a fourplex.
1: Wow, that's quite interesting that you mentioned that. And I was curious, is is the different rules in terms of zoning, is that kind of just grandfathering, like using as an example, uh, like in the old city of Scarborough, you can't park on the streets overnight on most streets, whereas in the city of Toronto, you can get a parking permit. Is it kind of like old rules from when Toronto and Scarborough were separate? Sort of, yeah. It, it, it's basically when that part of the city was de- first
0: developed. So old city of Toronto was developed before zoning was even invented. The city just sort of grew up organically based around fire codes. When zoning was invented and imposed on the city of Toronto, there was no way that you could really zone old Toronto because you had this wonderful, eclectic mix of of housing types that had just been allowed to evolve as the owners and the sort of loose market needed. But when the when you know, Scarborough's and North York's and things, they were developed in the sort of 50s and 60s. And by that point, zoning had taken taken root and the idea of separating uses and, you know, the sort of suburban sprawl, Canadian dream, having a single detached house on a nice big lot, that had firmly taken root and it was reflective of the planning policies of the time which basically had carried forward largely unchanged, at least residentially largely unchanged since it was first put in place. There are people like myself and some other sort of planning nerd activists who are strongly advocating for a complete rethink in how we do residential zoning and residential planning across the city of Toronto. We put out a book called House Divided, uh, all about this sort of planning nerdery and how we think these neighborhoods can and should be allowed to evolve in the future, so that they're not locked in time. But the old Toronto basically, yes, had to be sort of grandfathered in because you, like, you couldn't impose one use for a, even a block, because within that one block, you've got seven different housing types. And so when the, when the, the zoning bylaw was drafted, the wisdom that was imposed at that time was that we have to allow this to continue to be flexible because that's, that's its nature to be eclectic and, uh, and flexible. But the philosophy outside of old Toronto was very different. It grew up in a different era and that was an era of strict separation of uses, even within things like a semi-detached versus a detached house. Those are two different uses. But in old Toronto, that's basically the same use. It's just residential use.
1: Yeah, in terms of housing prices and different housing types, whether it's condos or townhouses, I would imagine that the policies that are in place in Scarborough North York are essentially driving up the, the cost of real estate and not leaving as many options out there for first-time home buyers in terms of condos and townhouses, because not a lot of first time home buyers with a stress test these days can afford a detached house right off the bat in North York or Scarborough? I'm of a somewhat mixed opinion
0: as to the impact of planning on housing prices. I think it does have certainly some impact in that if you wanted to turn a a single detached in North York into a triplex so that you and two other couples or whatever could jointly buy it, let's say, and then, you know, redevelop it as a triplex, each one being more affordable than the result than the original single detached. You, you just can't do that. Uh, you just, it's just not legal and the city will never support you doing that at this point in time. But I mean, it's not like downtown Toronto, which has the most flexible zoning in probably the country is the bastion of affordability anymore. I think the financialization of housing has done more to drive up unaffordability than planning does. Hopefully when the planning rules and regulations for a residential detached zone, or what we call the yellow belt, because of its color on the official plan map is yellow. um, I don't know that when, again, hopefully when, those rules are loosened that we're going to see prices collapse to the point of being affordable or whatever we considered affordable in the past. I just don't see that happening. It will be perhaps more relatively affordable because there are options that are presented that don't currently exist in terms of smaller housing and in more neighborhoods where it was previously prohibited. Maybe you, you can buy a $650,000 duplex condo. Instead of having to pay 1. Point, I don't know what 1.4, 1.5 million for the the detached house that it was part of originally, I'm not sure that that's what I would consider affordable anymore. But it's it's relatively more
1: affordable, perhaps. That's true. Yeah. Thanks for explaining all that. I was just wondering if you could briefly touch on some terms that people have heard out there. So you mentioned the yellow belt. Also, here, quite often the green belts Mention the growth plan and the OMB. Sure. Maybe you could just quickly. Define those because those terms are used a lot in yeah. the media. And I guess some listeners might not understand what they mean and what roles they play.
0: Oh, planners love belts. The green belt is the one that is most commonly known. And that is an area that comprises things like the Oak Ridge's Moraine, which is a landform feature that runs through like Vaughn and York and Durham. It also includes parts of the Niagara Escarpment area. It includes some of the farmland down in the Niagara Peninsula. And that's a, the Green Belt is an area that is rural and largely protected from new development. You can farm it and you can build a farmhouse, and that's more or less pretty much about it. It's basically reserved for non development. There's also the, there's a term called the White Belt, basically the only planners pretty much know about. And that is, if you look at the growth plan, this is now called Places to Grow. Basically, there's a provincial level planning document that sets out provincial growth strategies and provincial planning for the greater Golden Horseshoe and Hamilton sort of area. And in that, there's this area of land between the existing sort of built up area and the green belt. So the the vacant future urban land. You can find it mostly in like North Brampton and parts of Vaughan, you know, areas like that where it's planned for future growth, but the growth hasn't quite gotten there yet. And that's called the White Belt. Then there's the Yellow Belt. And the Yellow Belt is a term that was coined by another planner named Gil Meslin here in Toronto. And it's based on looking at the city of Toronto's official plan. So that's that higher level policy document that guides planning and development in Toronto. And in it, it has maps. Planners love maps. And areas of the city are colored different colors based on yellow for residential, red for mixed use, purple for industrial, or what we call employment lands, green for parks, things like that. He called it the yellow belt because the, again, the residential areas are colored yellow on this map. And it, it it's an extremely large swath of the city is deemed residential or the established neighborhoods. You know, these are your long branches, your Willowdales, your, you know, whatever. And the, the, this yellow belt comprises approximately 70%, seven zero, 70% of the land mass of the city of Toronto. It is a vast area. It is a huge amount of land. And within that, policies are either strongly restrictive of developing new multi-unit residential properties, or they're just straight up preventative. You just, you just, you just can't do it. Within the, this yellow belt, there are, let's say, degrees of yellow, and those are expressed through the zoning bylaw. Old Toronto with this R zone, this residential zone, which has this flexible zoning while it allows for example you to build a triplex let's say where north york there are pretty sure there are zero properties in the entire north york where you're allowed to build a triplex but downtown you can't downtown you want to build a triplex okay you're allowed to build that as a use now you have to design a building to house three units it can be tough to do that sometimes because of other restrictions that that are placed on multi-unit buildings, like, for example, building depth. If you have two identical lots, if you wanted to build a single detached house on one of them, you're allowed 17 meters of building depth. But if you want to build a triplex, you're only allowed 14 meters of building depth. That's an initial, like, 10 feet less. It's a significant difference. But in North York, another part of the Yellow Belt, Which is the RD zone, that yellowest of yellow belt, where all you're allowed to do is a detached house, you can't even have the conversation about how much depth is appropriate because you're not even allowed the use of a triplex. Like you can't even start to begin that conversation.
1: Sean, what could cities be doing a better job with from an urban planning standpoint to help make real estate more affordable? Because as you know, even from a decade ago, home prices are a lot higher in the City of Toronto and other big cities across Canada? I think there are some things that cities can do to help. And largely, it, it
0: involves rethinking our approach to planning and development of residential neighbourhoods. I don't know that changing zoning is going to lead to a significant housing price decline. That's very incremental. Like, that's change... You can put, the, you can put the, the zoning changes in place today, and you'll start seeing effects 10 years down the road, 15 down, years down the road. It's long-term generational change. It's not manufacturing, as someone once said to me. It, it's not manu- zoning is not manufacturing. It's it's more like gardening. Like you you plant the seeds, and at some point, some down the down the line, things will grow. It may not even be in our lifetime, but Things will, things will eventually change. People will want to do extra suites in their house, for example. I think that will help with affordability. I don't think it will lead to what we would consider like deep affordability. Like we're not gonna go back to the 80s and 90s and stuff. But I think it absolutely would help, and at least will help with housing availability. You know, if you want to move to parts of North York and Scarborough, like the only option you have is a detached house. And if you can't afford that detached house, you're not living in that part of the city at all. And you are excluded from that neighborhood by virtue of you not being able to afford a house. And that's just wrong for me. Um, and so by the city allowing more flexibility, like giving up some of the control, frankly, that is imposed. I think over time, this will lead to somewhat more relative affordability, but more availability. And it will allow more people to move into different neighborhoods. And I think that is absolutely a positive thing. And I I see, and basically, I I first, I just, I just see no benefit to maintaining the exclusionary zoning that exists in these, these parts of the city. If we were doing it from scratch today, I hope we wouldn't do it the same way. And so I don't think we should maintain it. I think there are, there are negative impacts in terms of housing availability, housing prices. I'm just not fully convinced that it's going to be uh, a wholesale change in pricing. I mean, people are still going to sell their house for whatever the market will bear. I don't think it's going to change the market that much. Cities can do a lot more in terms of investing and building more public housing, more subsidized housing. The Housing Now project from the City of Toronto, where they are giving land away effectively for free to provide developers an opportunity to provide lower cost housing in mixed income development. I think that's important and we need to do that. The market will take care of itself in terms of, of pricing, and I don't think there's a lot that the city can do to impact that. But we still should do some things regardless, and I think the city understands that, and they they're making some they're making some moves in that direction, which I think is very positive.
1: That's great to hear. Thanks so much for explaining that and the new homes front. What could all levels of mm. government be doing to help put? shovels in the ground quicker because I'm always hearing about all the red tape and how long it takes to build uh, pre-constructions. What's your opinion on that?
0: I think the shovels in the ground thing is, it it is both somewhat warranted and somewhat overblown by the development industry. Yes, the municipalities do throw up roadblocks and applications do take a long time to get approved. Working on a number of them that really, it should not take this long. But once the development is approved, go ahead, go build it. Like Developers, they sit on approvals. And maybe the market isn't right. Or maybe they think they can get a higher price. There are a lot of approvals that have just never been built. And can't put that on the city for somehow you know, blocking you. Expediting development processes is important. Making sure that cities have the right number of staff to quickly review and respond to applications when they come in is exceedingly important. For example, one, one change that the province put in place recently through this thing called Bill 108 is that cities or municipalities will now only have I think it's 90 days to review a zoning bylaw amendment request. It's basically a development application down from, I think it was 180 days before. That sounds good on paper, but in reality it's completely irrelevant. Like there's, there's no development application, certainly in the city of Toronto, that's only going to take three months to get reviewed. It's just, just not going to happen. The, the problem in Toronto is not too few units being approved like the city approves 20 30, 000 units of residential every year and there's 140,000 or whatever approved units that have never been built yet like there's a there's a backlog we need faster approvals yes we need the city to make things easier to get approved absolutely yes we also need a hell of a lot more construction crews. Like the the number of construction professionals who are going to be retiring in the next 15 years is enormous. And I don't know that there is the on-streaming of new construction crews and new construction professionals coming in behind to fill in that deficit. We physically can't build things because we don't have the people with the skills in enough quantity to actually build things. And that's driving up prices as well. The city getting out of the way is not going to drive the cost of windows down. Windows and related, they've gone up something like 30% in cost in the last few years. That's a huge increase. City getting out of the way is not going to drive that cost down. City getting out of the way is not going to produce more framers. For housing, or elevator installers, or whatever. So there's only there are certain things that the city absolutely can do. And City of Toronto, for example, they released a end-to-end review of their development and planning process, and where improvements can be made and what changes can be done. I think it is an incredibly important exercise. It was a huge undertaking, and I'm hopeful that it will result in positive changes to the timeline so that it doesn't take two or three years to get a project approved anymore in in Toronto. That's just ridiculous. So hopefully that will lead to more shovels in the ground and quicker, but that's only one part of a process. There are other factors that come into play, uh, costing material availability and crews financing, any number of issues that have at least an equal or perhaps larger influence in when development actually happens that is completely outside of the control of the city.
1: Well, thanks for explaining that. And I guess if you're looking for a future career, construction sounds like a good career to go into. Elevator repair
0: elevator repair. That is the absolute growth industry for people who want to go into the trades. You will never be without work as long as Toronto exists.
1: Sean, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Yeah. My real interest, that things that I love are what's called the missing middle. That is multi-unit residential projects that fall somewhere in between a single detached house and a mid-rise building. So sort of walk up apartments in fourplexes and triplexes and you know stuff that you find all over the place in old Toronto. I, I, I love working on those. I'm very passionate that we need countless more of them in Toronto. And I'm, I'm very happy that I'm working on three of them at the moment where we're converting, one we're converting basically a, a weird remnant parking lot into a fourplex. Another where we're turning one half of a semi into again into a fourplex, and another one where we converted a single detached house into a fourplex, so that uh, multi generations of one family could live under the, the same roof, basically each in their own apartment. Um, I'm also working on a few laneway suites, which I which I love, and I'm glad that the city has now made it a lot easier to get those approved. I'm hoping that the city Turns its attention to what are called coach houses, which is a whole other topic, basically a laneway suite without a lane. And maybe we can get some of those going in the future. But in the meantime, I, I love working on projects where we're adding units and adding people density to existing properties. I think it greatly benefits the people who will live there, it greatly benefits the neighborhood, benefits local retail, anything that we can do to get more people into neighborhoods is something that I love, I love working on and I'm glad to be a part of in my own little way.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time. Happy mortgage burning!